uh, round one and two, we tried to deal with that gap, the, the longitudinal gap between promise and fulfillment. Round two, we tried to deal with that gap that we call holiness, that there's a distance between us and God, but he's so gracious that he decided to bridge the gap. He's holy and we ought to be holy as well. But now let's look at an, another one. Psalm 146, this is where we'll end today. Thank you for, thank you in advance for your patience. Thank you again, Kitchen Ministry, for not having any peach cobbler, then you all surely would be asleep by now. <laughs> they had all the other fixings. I was looking for peach cobbler and banana pudding. I'm glad they didn't have it because I see about 18 people who would be nodding off right now. So that was a wise choice on their behalf. Psalm 146. Psalm 146. I'm going to read it in your hearing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Prisoners, pardon me, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Our only help our only hope. We've been arguing all day that you need to be careful about what you allow to capture your heart and imagination because you become like who or what you worship. We're hardwired, in point of fact, to worship something other than ourselves. And our default mode, because of our brokenness, is to worship small GODs that ultimately steal, kill, and destroy our joy worshiping the wrong God or the wrong perspective, the wrong image in your mind of the real God. We've tried to argue, not only leads to malformed Christians, but leads to unacceptable worship. And so I thought it useful today, as we've been spending time in the Hebrew hymnal, to take a look at this hymn in the last little run of hymns, these last six hymns in the Psalter are, are hymns of praise. And ultimately, we want to become like the one we worship, this eternal God, our eternal God, who is our helper and our only hope. In case you missed it, I, I just want to say he's our only help and he's our only hope. He, he's our true help. 
and our true hope. He's our best help and our best hope. Why is that? Why is he, why would I say he's our only hope? Well, this text highlights, number one, his eternal rule and faithfulness. You see this, for example, in the end, verse 10, where it says the Lord will reign forever. It talks about the fact in verse 6 that he keeps faith forever. So his reign is not up for re-election. He has no concern for polls or surveys. He just rules and super rules. And he does it forever. You say, okay, well, that's, okay, why would you even say that? Of course, we understand that. But in this text, it's juxtaposed against human rulers who are of no help and ultimately are a false hope. The text points it out. You see how your Bible, look at verse 3. It says very clearly, don't put your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Why? When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. The problem with trusting human potentates for ultimate things is that they themselves are vaporous, ephemeral, temporary, and ultimately unaffected. Human rulers boast of great things, but God holds the very breath that they boast with. When he created man, he blew into his nostrils the very breath of life. He exhaled. But when he recalls his breath, when he inhales, when he pulls back that which he brought forth on that very day, human plans perish. Man is only here for a moment. When his breath goes back to God, his body goes back to the dirt and his plans evaporate and are eulogized right along with him. I point that out because in today's fractured political environment, we have people who are putting their ultimate hope in a political party. And some are even making small GODs out of people who 20 years ago would be disciplined in any church for some of the things they say and do. But this text is helping us to understand that man's time here is fleeting, his power is feckless, he has no ability to rescue, to deliver, or to ultimately save. Therefore, we ought to put our hope in someone who has eternal rule and eternal faithfulness. If whoever you're trusting for your ultimate security hadn't been here from generation to generation, if they won't be here when you have long since laid down this dust suit and gone back to where you came, if the one you're trusting in does not have a record of faithfulness that goes beyond your family history, goes across ethnic lines, and can span the eons, then you need to get someone else to trust in. And I recommend this one. Because holy is he. He's different. 
And even if his promises are delayed, they are always fulfilled in ways better than what we could imagine. Don't put your trust in princes. Can I say something else? Don't put your trust when it comes to ministry in formulas or platforms or protocols, policies. You better put your trust in the one who has an eternal rule and eternal faithfulness. But that's not really the heart of the text. The heart of the text gets at this idea that he's our only help and our only hope, not because of his long track record that goes from eternity past and projects into eternity future, but because of his existential identification. Look at verse 7 all the way through 10. It says that this one who is eternally faithful executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, watches over the sojourners, the widows, and the fatherless. But he loves the righteous and he brings the wicked down to ruin. Identification. This is why he's our only help and our only hope because this God is the God of Jacob, according to verse 5. Why does it say God of Jacob? You could have used any other appellation for God. God has a whole lot of different names, a whole lot of ways Old Testament writers identify with him. But from my, from my perspective, this seems to be a personal de- designation. And it points out that God deigns to identify with us. The greatest being identifies with the least likely. God doesn't mind being identified with tricksters like Jacob. He's not only the God of Jacob, he's the God of Ed, because I'm just as messed up as Jacob. And if you have a relationship with him, people ought to call him the God of whatever your name is, because he identifies with you. He identifies with the least likely. He was not afraid to be known as the friend of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, though both of them were prone to lying. He used to talk to Moses face to face, though he had committed murder. He doesn't mind identifying with people that we would consider unsavory because he doesn't love people based on their performance. He loves them based on his character. He doesn't freeze us in the worst behavior we have demonstrated. 17 people ought to be shouting right there. Our help is in the God of Jacob, the one who identifies with and redeems the incorrigible. Our hope is in the covenant-keeping God, the one who is faithful when we're faithless. But notice, not just the God of Jacob, look at all the categories he identifies with. God's indictment to the prophets of old is, how are you treating the widows, the orphans, the immigrants? For example, in Isaiah Chapter 1, verse 17, he says, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. And he indicts the rulers back in Isaiah's days because he says, your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. I could run the gamut in Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 60. Matter of fact, in Isaiah 61, the Lord's anointed, has been anointed to deal with the oppressed, the broken, the captives, and the prisoners. Now, why is that important to us? 
Because if this is the God we worship, then why don't we identify with these groups? Why don't they feel more welcome in our assemblies, in our presence? And are there others who ought to be on this list who are marginalized, who are discounted in terms of their humanity, but because they're made in God's image, he identifies with them. Now, when I say identifies with them, identification doesn't mean approval of behavior. It just recognizes that some people in a society are treated a certain way based on things they have no control over. And that God tends to Find a way to identify with those whose backs are against the wall, those who are left out, who are looked over, those who are the least and the unlikely. It's not just, however, in this text that the psalmist is singing and praising God for his eternal rule as juxtaposed against human influencers and their ephemeral power, not just his identification with the most vulnerable, but the text highlights his executive power to make right what's wrong. He executes justice. It's not just that he has empathy for certain groups, but verse 7 says he executes justice for the oppressed. What does justice look like? Well, it's not just punishment of the perpetrator. That's Verse 9, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. But justice, from a biblical perspective, is the restoration, the protection, and the support of the helpless. God executes justice. And we should praise him, according to this text, for his justice. Why? Because you become like who you worship. That's why we need to make sure that when we talk to ourselves, we're picking the right text. You notice how this psalm opens up? Praise the Lord. But who is he talking to? Look at verse 1 again. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Here's something you can put in your utility belt. How often do you preach to your doggone self? And are you preaching the right text? (laughs) David helped us. He said, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord and all that is within me. What did he do? He rehearsed his history, forgives our sins. He crowns us with loving kindness, all those types of things. This idea of worshiping the Lord who executes justice is something that we need to add to our playlist because ultimately what we meditate on, what we worship will melt down from our intellect to our emotions and play out in our volition, in our will. You become like who you worship. Now, there's a big problem in this text. If we worship God for his justice, isn't that really an indictment against us? Because here's the truth of the matter. We like to think of ourselves as victims all the time. And it is true that many, if not all of us, at some point or some place will be oppressed or bowed down, the hungry or in need of healing. But my question to you is, what about the times that you are the oppressor? You say, well, wait a minute, I'm not doing anything wrong, Ed. 
I didn't set up this system. I wasn't there when this or that act took place. I'm trying to explain to you that justice and righteousness are not passive, they're active. Justice is neighbor love in action and in the public square. It's not enough to say that I wasn't there or I didn't do it because there's a higher standard that our king calls us to as he executes justice. Jesus could say things like this. You've heard it said by them of old, you shall not commit murder, but I say unto you, Whoever could, and, and whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, or in other words, you empty-headed man, in other words, impugning somebody's intellect, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, in other words, you morally worthless person, impugning somebody's character, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your, your offering at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled. This is, this is active. This isn't passive. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. In other words, Jesus is clearly saying you don't have to commit homicide in order to incur judgment. When you discount the image of God in somebody else, you're liable to him and you become part of the oppressor. You say, well, I'm still not oppressing anybody. Well, let's take a look at your text, your Facebook posts, your online engagement. Are you denigrating somebody else's character, somebody else's intellect? Are you somehow or another discounting whole groups of people that are made in the image of God? Then you're on the wrong side of his justice. This is, listen carefully to this point. We have to worship him for his justice, but don't get it twisted. Sometimes we are acting in ways that put us directly in line to face the wrath of God because we're discounting other people. We're denigrating. We are demonizing. And you can even do that theologically with your sanctified self. You say, well, well, I'm not doing anything like that. Well, what about this? The text is very clear about how God deals with the hungry and the immigrant and all this kind of stuff. Jesus helped me with this. Matthew 25, he says, here's what's going to happen in the end. I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. How are you going to do it, Jesus? Well, one going to be on one side, the other going to be on the other side. How will you divide him? When I was hungry. Did you feed me? When I was naked out indoors, did you clothe me and bring me in? When I was in prison, when I was sick, did you visit me and see about me? When I was an immigrant, how did you talk about me? How did you think about me? How are we dealing with hungry people? Well, I don't really have a lot of hungry people around me. Are you hoarding? What have you actively done to help make sure that hungry people have something to eat? And are you willing to adjust your lifestyle to live more simply so that others can simply live? I knew it was going to get tight right in here, but that's all right. I'm just talking about that the problem with the text is that God executes judgment and that if we were to look at our lifestyles, could we not rightly say that maybe I'm in line for the judgment of God in light of what he 
claims as his priorities and how I'm dealing with those things. Did you know that there are people in jail right now, because this text talks about the prisoners, people in jail right now who haven't been convicted of a crime, but because they don't have the money, they can't get out while they await trial. And maybe Christians ought to say something about people who are put in cages just because they don't have any money. What about widows and orphans where you live? Poverty in America is concentrated in women-led single households. Housing authorities in every municipality are functionally operating as reservations for poor women. What does this God we worship have to say about those things? And if we really worship him and we're becoming like him, what are we saying about those things? Bad news is that he executes justice. And when we get done talking, all of us have sinned. But the good news is he is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. And he's our only hope now and our only hope in the future. He's our only hope now because it's only in him that we can learn how to live in the gap. He's our only hope in the future because he will reign forever and ever. But in the meantime, God is calling us to be like him people who love justice, who execute justice, and who have a heart for those who are oppressed, hungry, bound, blind, the immigrant, and those who are marginalized by society. The good news in this text is he executes justice. And that justice that rightly should be executed against us was finally and ultimately executed about and toward the one who we ultimately worship, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because he identified completely, not only with us, but with the downtrodden, with the oppressed. He came to open blinded eyes. He came to set prisoners free, not just from the sin of slavery, but the slavery of sin. And because of who he is and because he is being formed in us, we ought to be like him and we need to learn how to enter into the world of other people so that they can get to know him as well. One day when I was in Kankakee, Illinois, where my father used to pastor, I was at a local fast food restaurant. Kankakee, Illinois, used to have a mental health uh, hospital way back in the day. As a matter of fact, if you were really having problems, they said, we, people all over the rest of the state would say, well, we're going to send you to Kankakee, which meant we're going to send you to the mental hospital. I happened to be in the fast food restaurant. I was sitting in one of these seats. Have you seen these seats at certain restaurants, they don't have them that much anymore, but they used to have seats where you couldn't scoot back. They were sort of bolted into the floor. and You had to sort of swivel in or swivel out. I was in one of those seats. Somebody came in and he obviously 
was having some emotional and mental sort of crisis. And he came to where I was sitting and stood over me and said, you better not move. I'll kill you right here. Now, I had a problem because this person was way bigger than me. I was caught in a situation where I couldn't swivel out. I couldn't get out the other way. I was in an intenable position. But it happened by God's grace. There was a man sitting across the restaurant with his wife and daughter who happened to see my circumstance. He was in no way like me. As a matter of fact, I saw him when he came in. He drove a pickup truck, had the um, certain emblems on the back of the truck, had a rifle prominently displayed in uh, the window. But he got up and came over to where I was, left his dinner, left his family, came to where I was. And he told my problem, you better not touch this man or you're going to have to deal with me. That's how he said it. That's how he said it. And now my problem had a problem. Because this guy obviously was used to, this might be a stereotype, but it seemed to me, based on his arms, he was used to toting hay and <laughs> wrestling cows and all this kind of stuff. And it was tremendous therapy for my problem because all of a sudden, he got some sense when he saw my problem solver had entered my world. The crazy man left me alone. I never saw that guy again. I didn't catch his name. All I knew is he was different from me. And he left his place of fellowship that came to come where I was and to get in my world to handle a problem I couldn't handle. I don't know his name, but I do know the name of somebody who handled a bigger problem than just someone uh, cornering me in a restaurant. He handled an ultimate problem that impacted my eternity. I do know somebody who left where he was. Matter of fact, he left his privileged place, his fellowship with the Father as well as the Holy Spirit and came and took on a form of a servant. He got in my world, in other words. And he dealt with my problem once and for all. And now, because I'm in him, there's therefore now no condemnation. There's nothing anybody has on me because he handled my problem once and for all. And because of that, now I have a different perspective of people who get hemmed in or people who can't help themselves, of people who are not like me, who have no hope, because my only help and my only hope was an alien help, an alien, something that didn't come from me, that something that came down from heaven to help me and give me hope. And now because I'm helped and because I'm full of hope, I have a responsibility to others who are voiceless, who are helpless, who are hopeless, who are oppressed, who are hungry, who are without someone on their side to be all of that in Christ as he gives me opportunity and as he gives me choice. But in the meantime, I get to praise the one. I get to meditate on the one who is eternally faithful. He never gets tired of being faithful. Yeah. 
he never gets tired of doing what's right. And, and, and here's what I like about him. He got the power to change stuff. He can change anything, including me and my sinful self. And ultimately, he loves to identify with those that sometimes I look over. So God help me to see people like you see them. God help me to welcome people like you welcome me. God help me to leverage my privilege for the underprivileged. And God help me to praise you and worship you as you reveal yourself until I am transformed from glory to glory to that very same image and Christ is fully formed in me. That's my prayer, that all the gaps will be filled in. So as you wait for promise to be fulfilled, maintain your hope in his character. As you think about the distance between you and God that we call holiness, don't let it be a cause of despair because the closer you get to him, the further away you see you actually are. But if you have faith, that he is not only forgiving, but the avenger of wrongdoing. You can have intimacy with this God who is holy. But that holiness ought to reflect in how we handle the categories, the demographics that the Bible itself presses as God's primary concern. He executes justice for the oppressed, the orphans, the widows, the immigrants, the lonely, and he does it eternally and faithfully. And God be praised because when I was homeless, I'm not talking about I didn't have a house, but I didn't have the hope of eternity. He prepared a home for me that where he is, there may I be also. When I was blind, he opened my eyes. When I was downtrodden and bowed down, he lifted my head because he's my only help and he's my only hope. So Father, help us, I pray, to live in the reality of who you are as you have revealed yourself in Scripture. Divorce us from false images of you. Clarify our sight. Give us pure hearts so we can see you. Teach us your way, O oh Lord, and we'll walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. And we'll give thanks to you with our whole hearts. We'll praise you forever and ever because you alone are righteous. You alone are just. You alone are forgiving. You alone are an avenger of wrongdoing, and our hope is in you. I pray now for each one of these, your children, that you keep a bubble of protection around them as they travel back to the various destinations. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit in each location, that you would give them clarity, insight, discernment, wisdom, knowledge, and most importantly, a listening ear as your Holy Spirit guides each campus ministry into the next phase of growth and glory.
I pray that you keep a bubble of protection around every dorm, every apartment in which they live. Let no one with evil intent, no evil spirit be able to find respite there. But I pray most of all that you would give us listening, give us a greater sensitivity. We love you, but we want to love you more and help us to love you so much that we love what you love, hate what you hate, and do what you would do. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.